You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Rosalind English. Back in November last year, my fellow presenter, Emma Louise Fenlon, spoke to David Anderson, now Lord Anderson of Ipswich QC, Alexander Sinclair and Joe Tomlinson about the Public Law Project report on the flaws of delegated legislation. These are rules that ministers are delegated to make by Parliament, particularly under pressure of withdrawal from the European Union. Statutory instruments are where ministers write in the detail. There are about a thousand times as many statutory instruments than actual primary laws. I have with me today Isabel McArdle and Sarabjit Singh QC of One Crown Office Row. Isabel practices in indirect tax, healthcare law, personal injury and public law. Sarabjit specialises in tax with particular emphasis on all forms of indirect tax and the interface between tax and public law. They've given a number of seminars on the implications of Brexit for tax lawyers and have kindly agreed to share their knowledge of this topic here. I do have to warn listeners that Saab is having some works done on his house, so we'll, you'll sometimes hear a bit of background noise, but it shouldn't be a problem. Isabel and Saab, welcome to LawPod UK. Thanks a lot for having Thanks us. For us. Just starting with the two main acts under which Henry VIII's powers have been particularly popular, the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 and the European Union Future Relationship Act. 2020. Sab, what are these Henry VIII powers? Well, Ros, the clue is in the name. (laughs) So Henry VIII, of course, was this brutal tyrant who used Parliament as a vehicle to permit him to rule by decree. So the term Henry VIII power is is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of referencing the government's preference to do a similar thing, to use secondary legislation to make law. It's a power in a primary act which enables a minister to amend a primary act of parliament through secondary legislation. So the executive is altering the laws made by parliament. And that's considered undesirable because it involves uh, Parliament being bypassed, essentially. Um, And so the the term Henry VIII power is used as a kind of insulting way of comparing a minister with the the kind of the tyrannical nature of Henry VIII. And of course, it's not just these Henry VIII powers. They just encompass the ability to change other primary legislation, it can also be cannibalistic, can't it? That it can change the act under which the Henry VIII powers themselves are issued. Yeah, there are quite a few examples of that, where the Henry VIII power enables the minister to alter any act. So not only the act that the Henry VIII power is in, or other acts, but even acts that haven't been passed at that point. So there could be a subsequent act and the minister has the power to make amendments to that as well. So they can be very broad indeed, Ros. So what's objectionable about them, Isabel? One for you. So I think it's important to say that there's nothing in itself that's necessarily objectionable about subordinate legislation or secondary legislation. It has a very important place 
in that it allows, for instance, a specialist department to fill in the administrative details or the specialist details following primary legislation having been passed. There's a lot of minutiae when it comes down to the the finer details of uh, regulatory law, for example, where it makes a lot of sense not to have Parliament deciding every single very fine detail of things like, you know, for example, which time of year um, fishing can go on for certain species in order to protect stocks and, and allow them to replenish. It makes sense for that kind of issue to be delegated out to government departments. But the concern from a constitutional perspective is that when it comes to so-called Henry VIII powers, i.e. powers which allow primary legislation to be amended or repealed by a government minister, that there's a lack of parliamentary scrutiny. So to explain why that's the case, there can be scrutiny of secondary legislation, but there's very little of it. I think there's something like one in 10,000 pieces of secondary legislation, in fact, doesn't get approved by Parliament. And there are two ways in which secondary legislation can be approved. There's a negative resolution procedure in which it simply becomes law, but there is a short period of time during which a member of Parliament or the House of Lords can seek to introduce a motion to annul. There's also the affirmative resolution procedure, which is where the secondary legislation does require positive endorsement by the House of Commons and the House of Lords, so they can intervene and prevent it becoming law. But the reality is that the vast majority of the time, it's just passed through, as it were, on the nod. There isn't really any scrutiny of secondary legislation. So that's the concern from a constitutional perspective, that it gives huge power to the hands of ministers to amend or repeal Acts of Parliament. Could either of you give an example of such a power being passed and put into practice? Yes, Ros. I mean, there is a very good example in the Child Care Act 2016. And the example I'll give is in Section 4, Subsection 2 of that Act. And you'll just get an indication of how broad the power is. So what Section 4, Subsection 2 states is that regulations may, and I'll cite D here, D, amend, repeal or revoke any provision made by or under an act whenever passed or made. So that is effectively saying that a minister through regulations can alter, repeal or revoke any act of parliament, even an act not made at the time the Child Care Act 2016 was passed. And the structure of the Child Care Act 2016 was that it contained a kind of generic mission statement at the beginning and then essentially left it to the government to legislate through regulations. And as Isabel has indicated, that's of serious concern because it involves the government doing what should really be done by Parliament and doing it with little serious scrutiny. And that's the nub of the concern about Henry VIII powers. They undermine the supremacy of Parliament. And of course, as Isabel has pointed out, the procedures for getting subordinate legislation passed allow for very little, and practice, very little scrutiny is given. And these motions of regret are very rarely sought because it's such an all-or-nothing 
procedure. You either ask for the whole thing to be annulled or it goes through. You can't ask for an objectionable bit of it to be taken away. Is that correct? That's exactly right, Roz. And that's what we see happening in practice, that between 1950 and 2015, 170,000 statutory instruments were laid before Parliament. How many were rejected? So how often was this all or nothing power used? 17 times. That's one seven out of 170,000 statutory instruments. So 99.99% went through exactly as they were drafted by government departments. So you're right, Roz, they're almost never rejected. I suppose even the opposition would look carefully at any possibility of getting these things properly debated because, of course, when they're in power, they'd like that sort of Henry VIII power as well. I just wanted to talk about current circumstances because, playing devil's advocate here, Parliament can't debate everything at the leisurely pace that it has done in the past because of two things. One is the coronavirus pandemic and the other is because of the need to unscramble our laws from the European Union. Surely there is no other way of doing it at the moment. I mean, absolutely, that's the justification for doing it. It would be very difficult practically to have all secondary legislation fully scrutinised by Parliament or made as primary legislation by Parliament. So the reality is that secondary legislation, including some so-called Henry VIII powers, is the practical reality. But I think that, as you highlight, there are certain circumstances at the moment, Brexit and coronavirus, which mean that there is probably going to be a particularly large volume of it. And it does give rise to, well, huge pressures on Parliament to try to scrutinise as much as possible, which just isn't always practical. So by way of a bit of background for those perhaps who aren't that familiar with EU law and how it interacts with our law, EU law, of course, has been embedded in our law. And until we left the European Union, it was supreme over our law. Regulations made by the EU, for example, became primary law in this jurisdiction. So the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 provides um, a large part of the solution for how we were going to affect Brexit and not have uh, essentially large holes in our law which had previously been filled by EU jurisprudence, EU legislation. And subject to various exceptions, which are important but nevertheless exceptions, basically everything which was EU law up to the 31st of December 2020 has been retained as part of our domestic law. But, of course, the government would like to depart in some significant ways from EU law going forward. And so one of the key ways in which it's likely to do that is through the operation of secondary legislation. Now, there are provisions in the 2018 Withdrawal Act which already allow for secondary legislation, which is very broad in effect and can potentially lead to the amendment of primary legislation. And one of the really interesting ones is Section 8. That provides that a Minister of the Crown can make secondary legislation to deal with deficiencies in EU law that arise from our withdrawal or exit from the EU. And that's been um, subject already to an application for judicial review. And the areas that this is particularly important are things like fisheries, immigration from the EU, agriculture, many other areas in which EU is writ large in 
domestic law. You've done these seminars for tax lawyers. Could you give me some examples of the tax implications of this? Okay, so it does seem likely that that there will be challenges to the use of Henry VIII powers in the EU Future Relationship Act 2020, particularly in the tax context. Now, what that act does is it gives very broad powers to ministers. So Section 31, for example, gives the relevant national authority, which includes the minister, the power to make such provision as it considers appropriate to implement the trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and EU or otherwise for the purpose of dealing with matters arising out of or related to that agreement. Now, what kinds of matters arise out of or relate to that agreement? Well, lots of those will be, for example, customs type matters. So it does seem likely that the government and government departments, including HMRC, will try to use these broad powers to implement laws in regulations that perhaps ordinarily one would expect to be implemented through a primary act of parliament. So we imagine that in the customs context in particular, there will be increasing use of Henry VIII powers, perhaps because it may just be practically there's not enough time to pass things through Parliament. But if that does happen, then equally we can imagine some pushback against that from taxpayers, because the taxpayers won't be happy if they're affected by a regulation where they consider that it, for example, implements some kind of policy change, which should really have been properly debated by Parliament and eventually passed in an Act of Parliament. Isabel, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, absolutely. So I previously touched on Section 8 of the Withdrawal Act 2018, which of course is not just specific to the tax context, and the Public Law Project has an ongoing judicial review relating to that. That's a power that allows ministers to pass secondary legislation dealing with deficiencies arising from our withdrawal, and the ongoing judicial review relates to some state aid regulations. But just contrasting that power with the Taxation Cross-Border Trade Act, Section 51 power, and that's a 2018 act, I should have said, that's an even broader power and it's specific to tax. So that provides that the appropriate minister may, by regulations made by statutory instrument, make such provision relating to value-added tax, customs and excise as the appropriate minister considers appropriate in context of or otherwise in connection with the withdrawal of the UK from the EU. So that doesn't require the minister to find that there's some kind of deficiency or something wrong with the interaction of the retained EU law with our domestic law or, for instance, that there's a a public body that's sort of missing from the operation of the retained public law because we no longer recognise that EU public body as part of our law. So whatever function it was performing before, we need to insert a new public body, for example. This just allows a minister to create legislation which it considers appropriate in consequence of or in connection with the withdrawal of the UK from the EU. So potentially a very broad tax-specific power, and it's already been used in several pieces of secondary legislation. So far as I'm aware, I don't believe any of them are subject to judicial review at the moment, but it's likely going forward, given that there's such a huge superstructure of EU law in various areas of tax domestically, such as VAT, that there's going to be probably quite a bit more legislation made pursuant to Section 51, which may be amenable to challenge if it's seen as going outside of the scope of what Parliament intended when it passed Section 51 and gave ministers that broad power.
So what are the, well, you have sort of mentioned it, but I just want to zone in on the public law element here. If you take judicial review proceedings, what is the basis upon which a judge can declare a statutory instrument ultraviaries without the power of the Act? Yeah, a good example of that, Roz, is we saw it in the public law project case. So that was a judicial review issued by the public law project against the Lord Chancellor. And what happened in that case was that the Lord Chancellor attempted to introduce a residence test for civil legal aid by amending primary legislation through regulation. So what he wanted to do was limit the grant of civil legal aid to only those lawfully resident in the UK, with some obvious exceptions, such as for asylum seekers. Now, the Act itself didn't create that kind of restriction, but the Lord Chancellor claimed that a Henry VIII power in an Act permitted him to make such an amendment to primary legislation. And we have some indication of the court's role in that context given by Lord Newberger in in his judgment in the Supreme Court. So he said subordinate legislation will be held by a court to be invalid if it has an effect or is made for a purpose which is ultra-virus that is outside the scope of the statutory power pursuant to which it was purportedly made. And what we saw in the public law project case was the court deciding what the purpose of the relevant act of parliament was. So Lord Newberger began by defining that purpose as the challenging of civil legal aid on the basis of a number of factors such as the nature and importance of the issue at stake. But importantly, he didn't include within the purpose the exclusion of a specific group of people from the scope of most areas of civil legal aid. So it was inevitable that once he defined the purpose as X and the regulations did Y, it would be held, oh, well, actually, the regulations are outside the scope of the purpose of the Act. So it seems that that is really the key to challenging regulations made under the Henry VIII power. It's to say, well, the Act has a particular purpose and it does one thing and the regulations do something else, therefore they're ultra-virus. I mean, I've sort of touched on this before. The Legal Aid Act is, or powers passed under it, it's quite easy to find a purpose that is inconsistent with the subordinate legislation. But it seems to me it's a simplistic attitude that the European Union Withdrawal Act is just that. So, I mean, that's about taking European law out of our domestic law, and it has to be done in a bit of a hurry. So it's going to be quite hard for a judge to find that any subordinate legislation is without the powers of that very broad act. And the same can be said of the European Union Future Relationship Act 2020. Am I being too simplistic here? Well, I think that that's certainly an argument that will be very much live. I mean, these are broadly worded provisions. There's no question about it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't scope for a VERA's challenge on the basis that, for instance, in relation to Section 8, Section 8 is actually quite prescriptive as to what constitutes a deficiency which can then give rise to the power being exercised. So, for example, a deficiency under subsection 2 can be where retained EU law contains something which has no practical application in relation to the United Kingdom or part of it, which confers a function on 
an EU entity which no longer has functions in the UK. So I think Section 8 is one in which there is real scope for looking at the detail of the section and arguing that potentially some types of legislation, secondary legislation, may well fall foul of it because it is fairly prescriptive at saying what sort of purposes it's meant to serve. It's there not just because there is something which a government minister might feel is inappropriate or insufficiently flexible or some problem with EU law which existed before the end of the implementation period, but it has to be um, some sort of deficiency that exists because of our withdrawal. The example I gave before is a good one, which is where there was an EU law public body performing some kind of function And so pursuant to the black letter of retained EU law, that public body continues to perform that function. But of course, in practical terms, it doesn't because we want to have a, um, well, we need to have a domestic public body instead performing whatever that function is. That's the kind of situation which Section 8 is designed for. But you're absolutely right that where Parliament has deliberately drafted these powers very broadly, it does make it difficult to challenge them on a viewer's basis. The only thing I'd add to that, Rosalind, is that the use of general words in the Henry VIII power, the primary act, doesn't necessarily help the government. Because what we saw in public law project was Lord Newberger quoting approvingly from a textbook which said that although Henry VIII powers are often cast in very wide terms, the more general the words used by Parliament to delegate power, the more likely it is that an exercise within the literal meaning of the words will nevertheless be outside the legislature's contemplation. So the idea there is that if an act states that regulations may amend any act or other general words to that effect, Parliament could not possibly have actually intended for its role to be totally usurped by the minister through regulations, as a literal reading of those words would suggest. So a court in that scenario actually won't read the words in that literal way. So it may be that the use of the the kind of general wording in practice doesn't actually help the government when a challenge is made to regulations made purportedly under the Henry VIII power. So it could be said to be a bit of a known goal, these general wordings. But of course, challenge in a court, though obviously quite often very effective, is a port of last resistance. We shouldn't be relying on judges to fix the laws of the country. It should be Parliament. What do you think is a practical solution to the combination of laws having to be made quickly, but properly debated and scrutinised by Parliament? So I think that there is an important role for public interest groups to scrutinise bills and perhaps to highlight to MPs that there are particular issues arising which they should then raise when it comes to the secondary legislation being scrutinised by Parliament. There's certainly a role for the public to play um, and for interest groups to play in doing that because the practical effects of so much secondary legislation being produced makes it very difficult for MPs to be on the ball about every single piece that might be being produced. I think also it's important to note that certainly in relation to a lot of these Brexit-related provisions, there tend to be time limits. So Section 8, for instance, of the 2018 Act 
only permits the passing of secondary legislation pursuant to it for two years after IP completion day, which is the 31st of December of last year, 2020. So, you know, there isn't very much time for this to be done. And that might mean that there is a real rush toward the end for secondary legislation to be passed pursuant to this sort of section. It makes it more difficult for Parliament to scrutinise and it does mean that more care should be taken, both obviously by ministers to check in the first place that they are complying with the spirit of the legislation and also for you know, rights campaigners and, and interest groups to make sure that they look very carefully at legislation that is being passed in order to ensure constitutional compliance. I mean, at first glance, it may seem like there is no practical solution in that there is a need to make laws quickly, but equally, laws should be made by Parliament and applied by the executive. But we have seen examples of Parliament acting very quickly when it needs to and proposed laws still being debated to at least some extent. We saw that, for example, prior to the passing of the Future Relationship Act at the end of 2020. So it probably is possible to come up with some kind of procedure or mechanism through which Parliament is able to at least have some kind of debate or input into laws which may have kind of wide policy ramifications, which really shouldn't be left to the minister's discretion through regulations. But I think it's that's just a question of kind of parliament being flexible with its procedures to enable the debate to happen. I mean, one of the problems that we haven't talked about is the actual comprehensibility of the language. I mean, ministers should really make it their business to write in the details in these subordinate legislation in such a way that people who are not experts can understand them. That's completely right, Ros, and we see that even in areas which profoundly affect people's lives. So the the current so-called lockdown restrictions, I mean, when we try and look at the law on that, I mean, there's so many dozens of pages, and it does put the citizen in a bit of a quandary, because how are they meant to understand kind of what these 70 pages of various amendments and so on actually mean in practice. So you make a really good point that it is important for the law to be clear and for the citizen to be able to understand it. And that is a bit of a problem with some of these regulations in that they're not really too clear from the perspective of the layperson. And I mean, it's a problem with a lot of legislation. I really hate when you look at a provision and it sort of says, well, X applies apart from if you fall into these other provisions. So you look at those other provisions and then one of them says, well, Y applies unless you fall into these other provisions. So you look at those other provisions and you sort of end up going on this extremely long wild goose chase to try to find out whether you come within the terms or not. Well, I think we've pretty much covered all the topics around the subject and the problems we have at the moment. So thank you very much, Sab and Isabel, for spelling out some of the detail. And very good to have you on LawPod UK. Many thanks for having us. Thanks, Ros. Thank you. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend.